So we come to the end of this series in 1 Corinthians. And this morning, we're going to wrap up in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, uh, in your order of worship, you'll see a sermon guide and the scripture is printed on the top of that. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, along with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Have you ever watched someone get into a dating relationship and change? Uh, years ago, I wa we watched it happen with a young girl who got into a dating relationship and she started to change dress differently, behave differently. Uh, and in and, and many ways, after a while, you, we started to ask the question, who, who is she? Who has she become? Because she was in this dating relationship. Or have you ever seen someone, maybe a young, young man or a young woman, get into a mentoring relationship with an adult, a young adult, and they begin to change? Uh, we did youth ministry for many years. And in doing youth ministry, we would raise up young adult leaders that would lead uh, small groups in discipling and leading uh, youth. And the stories, numerous stories of parents that would come up to us and say, ever since 
so-and-so has been in so-and-so's small group. Ever since my son has been in so-and-so's small group, he's changed. Or he's behaving differently. He's, he's engaging differently at home. It, we're just so thrilled. Right? Or there's the, the negative side of this. And you see a teenager that gets into a wrong crowd or gets into wrong relationships and things start to change drastically, right? They, be, they begin to uh, disengage at home. They begin to dress differently. They, uh, maybe the grades begin to drop. In all of these, we see a profound truth. And that is that relationships change us. And Paul, at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, says, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, Paul says. In relationship with the risen Christ, your life changes. Your labor changes. Your purpose changes. That in relationship with the risen Christ, everything changes. You say, well, how? Well, that's chapter 16. Right after, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is alive and risen. And he says, in relationship with the risen Lord, let me give you a snapshot of what life is to look like in relationship with the risen Lord. Let me give you a snapshot of what a community looks like when it is actively and dynamically and functionally in relationship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He says at the end of chapter 15, abound in the work of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? How do you abound or overflow? How do you overflow in the work of the risen Lord in relationship with the risen Lord? First, overflowing in generosity. Look at verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. This collection for the saints, if you go down to verse three, we see that this is a collection for the saints or the believers in the Jerusalem church. Now why? Why is Paul collecting an offering for the believers in the Jerusalem church? Well, first, the Jerusalem church was the epicenter of the church planting movement that had, that had scattered and sprung up in the region around Jerusalem. There were a, a strategic centers around Jerusalem where the gospel had scattered to and churches had been established. So you had Corinth, the church at Corinth. That was a strategic center for Greece. You had the church in Ephesus. That was a strategic center for Asia Minor. You had the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica that was a, a strategic center for Macedonia. And Paul is calling all of these Gentile churches that were birthed out of the Jerusalem church to now give back to, to give an offering to the Jerusalem church that was in need. Why was the Jerusalem church in need? In Acts 4, we learn, and this is early on in the church, we learn in the Jerusalem church that there was no one who had need because Acts 4 describes how people were selling land, selling houses, selling property, taking the proceeds, putting it at the apostles' feet. 
And then it was being distributed to anyone who had need. So there were no needy persons, it says in Acts 4. Then Acts chapter 7, one of the first deacons in the early church, Stephen, gets martyred. And a great persecution breaks out against the Jerusalem church. People are scattered. Members move away, which is why all of these churches around Jerusalem got planted. It's because believers were pushed out of Jerusalem by this persecution. And so what was left in Jerusalem was were a few members of the Jerusalem church, but, but no land, no possessions, right? They had sold them off, and now those people were gone. And so the ones that were left in the Jerusalem church joined the ranks of the poor. And there was a deep need. In fact, when Paul received his calling as an apostle, in Galatians 2, it says that he was received by the other apostles, and then he was sent out to be the missionary to the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. They, meaning the, the apostles that had received Paul and sent him out, they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. Regard for the poor. Regard for those who are in need. That's where generosity starts. And Paul gives another example in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter eight, as he's instructing them there as well, collecting this gift to bring back to Jerusalem. He tells the story of the churches in Macedonia. Listen, listen to this description of the churches in Macedonia in regards to their giving and their generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were begging Paul. Paul, please let us give. Now, every one of us goes, oh my goodness. What in the world would prompt that kind of heart attitude? Please let me give. I've got to give. Such a lavish response. What prompts it? Well, a few verses later, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Generosity begins and ends with Jesus redefining wealth. Jesus defines wealth that is not attached to your bank account. He defines wealth that's not attached to your 401k. He defines wealth that's not attached to your investments. He defines wealth by first identifying your real poverty that in your spiritual poverty, not material poverty, but in your spiritual poverty, Jesus moved towards you in your poverty of sin. And he took your poverty of sin and gave you his wealth so that he became poor and you became rich. What is the wealth that he gave you? 
his righteousness, which means his perfect record, his sinless record became yours. Uh, The glorious inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth that we talked about last week, the glorious body that you will inherit just like his that we talked about last week, all of that is the wealth of Christ that is given to you. And Ephesians 1 says that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of that inheritance. And in Romans 8, Paul says, it's not even worth comparing. Your present sufferings, and I'll add to that, your current bank account, your 401k, your whatever, your present sufferings, your current wealth materially is not even worth comparing, Paul says, to the glory that will be revealed. That there is this inheritance, and it's a future inheritance that's so glorious that it's not even worth comparing to what you have now. And the Holy Spirit's the down payment of that inheritance. Have you ever had the experience of um, experiencing fear and anxiety about some event that you were about to do? Just almost locks you up, right? As you think about it, fear and anxiety locks up and, and then you actually go to the event or do that something and you get done with it and you go, oh, that wasn't so bad. Why was, I so, why was I so afraid? Why was I so fearful? Have you ever cliff jumped? It's a blast. It's so much fun. But I'll tell you, the first time I did it in North Carolina, I remember it distinctly. I was walking through the woods and the woods clear to this rock outcropping and then the rock outcropping comes to an end. And below is this big pool of water. And what looked like about a hundred foot cliff jump actually was only about 40 to 50 feet. That is still a significant jump. And I remember up there on that rock outcropping, feeling anxiety, fear. I was feeling sick to my stomach. My heart was fluttering. I was having trouble catching my breath. 20 minutes or so of that until I finally mustered the courage to jump. So I jumped. I landed in the water. I popped up to the surface and I thought, well, that wasn't that bad. So I got out of the water, climbed up the hill, and I did it again and again and again with no fear, no anxiety. Why? Because that future unknown reality before my first jump after my first jump became a present known reality that took away anxiety, that took away fear. The role of the Holy Spirit as the down payment is to make the future reality, your future reality, your future inheritance in Christ, such a present reality that it takes away fear that it takes away anxiety, that it takes your focus off your bank account or your wealth or your material possessions or what you have or don't have. In other words, the Holy Spirit makes Jesus and his wealth more real than your bank account, more real than what you have now. And that is what produces generosity. That's what produces, like we see with the churches in Macedonia, that's what will produce a begging to give. 
because your wealth has been redefined. Now, let me just speak into a couple of practical points here on on giving or the practice of generosity that Paul points out. Number one, beginning of verse two, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. First day of the week, that is the Lord's day. That's the day that Jesus rose out of the grave and secured your inheritance, right? So on the first day of the week, on the day that Jesus rose out of the grave, secured that glorious inheritance for you that doesn't compare to anything you have now, on the first day of the week, plan what you're gonna give. Paul says, I don't wanna come back and there be this haphazard scrambling to gather a collection or pennies that come out of the piggy bank that's left over. The point Paul makes here is plan your giving, plan it. And then after you've planned what you're going to give, whatever's left over, now create your budget for life, but not the reverse. Don't budget for your life, see what's left over and go, okay, I guess I'll give that. No, Paul says just the opposite. On the first day of the week, plan what you're gonna give. And then whatever's left over, budget for your life. Number two, look what else he says here, middle of verse two. It says, as he may prosper. What does this mean? Well, certainly the the New Testament scriptures speak of, and the scriptures in general speak of giving sacrificially. Uh, the, the, The scriptures also speak about giving tithing regularly to your church. That's not what Paul's talking about here. This, he was not talking about the Corinthians regular giving to the Corinthian church. He was talking about here, the collection was a special love offering. Okay, it was above and beyond the tithe. And, and what he means here with, a, with this love offering and, and as you may prosper is as the Lord blesses you financially, give above and beyond. In other words, as the Lord blesses you financially with a raise or a bonus, from work or an inheritance from the death of a loved one, decide what you're gonna give. All of it, some of it, but give generously. That's what Paul's speaking about here. So how do you overflow in the work of the risen Lord? First, by overflowing in generosity. Overflowing in generosity. Second, by overflowing in service. In verses five to nine, in verse 12, Paul talks about his travel plans. And in verse 12, he talks about the travel plans of his partner, Apollos. And what you'll notice in those travel plans, there's three phrases that I want you to see that are critically important. First one's in verse seven. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Key phrase. Verse eight. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Wide door for effective work is open. Important phrase. Verse 12, I strongly urged him, Apollos, to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will or God's will for him to come now. Abounding in service or overflowing in service is what Paul is getting at here with these phrases that is all about following the risen Lord. Following the risen Lord. End of chapter 15, when Paul says abounding in the work of the Lord, it's, it, we, we kind of overlook it, but abounding in the work of the Lord. It's the Lord's work. It's not ours. 
We don't create it. It doesn't belong to us. It's the Lord's work. And he asks us to follow him in it. Which means that you follow the risen Lord into your neighbor's house. Right? If there's an, if there's an effective uh, work, a door that's been opened, if the door's been opened, guess who opened it? Jesus did. Jesus opened the door. Jesus walked through and he says, come with me. So come with me into your neighbor's house, your neighbor's life. Or, or follow the risen Lord into that hospital room to visit a friend or a loved one who's sick. Or follow the risen Lord to the graveside service. Or follow the risen Lord into the surgery you're about to perform. Follow the risen Lord into the classroom. Follow the risen Lord into that meeting that you're about to have with an employee, a difficult meeting with the employee at work. That we follow the risen Lord. That he calls us on mission. It's his mission. I remember after my sophomore year of college, I was a, I was a security assistant at a department store in the Pompano Fashion Square Mall in South Florida. Burdines. Security assistant at Burdines. And one day, I'm out on the floor just doing my work, the really, really noble work of making sure that those plastic things are clicked onto the clothing so that when they walk out, it beeps, right? I was, I was getting after it. And the security manager comes up to me, Kimberly, not my wife, different Kimberly, comes up to me and she says, Keith, come with me. There's a teenager who just shoplifted jewelry with his mom and they're headed out into the mall. And I'm like, okay, I'm a 20-year-old guy who's about to go apprehend a teenager and his mom for shoplifting. I was just, I mean, my adrenaline was pumping. And then she says, and you have to hold my hand because we have to act like we're a couple so we don't look strange and we can get up behind them. And I'm like, okay, this is getting better, right? Here's the point of that story. I was called on that mission. I didn't create it. It didn't belong to me. She called me on this mission to go apprehend this person who had shoplifted. In Matthew 28, when Jesus gives us the great commission, he calls us on the mission. It is his. We don't create it. It doesn't belong to us. He walks through the door. He opens the door to new places, to new people, and says, come, come with me, follow me, partner with me. He calls us on mission. He leads us on mission. And even in the, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, he starts with saying, all authority has been given to me. That's Jesus' language to say, I will open hearts, I will open lives, I will open doors. You don't create that. I do it. And then he ends with, and I will be with you. So he calls us on mission and then he leads us to it and he comes with us. We come with him right, to go on mission. Now, what does a life oriented around the mission of the risen Christ look like? What does it look like to overflow in service to the risen Lord? who's on mission and calling us on mission with him. Well, Paul gives us two examples here. And you know what I love about these examples? The examples are not of other apostles or other ordained coworkers of Paul. These are examples of regular 
people with regular everyday lives with regular jobs. It's beautiful. Look at the first one, verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Isn't this beautiful? Paul, at the end of his letter, reminds the Corinthian church of this person, Stephanus, who was the first person to come to Christ in Corinth. And we learn in chapter one of this letter that it was one of the first people that Paul baptized. And it says that Stephanus and his household were absolutely foundational to the birth of this church because other people that started coming to Christ, guess who, who led them, discipled them, shepherded them? Stephanus and his household. And apparently, they had organizational skills. And so they did a lot of the hard work of, of developing this church in Corinth. They gave themselves to the risen Christ. And that, took, that manifested itself in them giving their lives to the local church in Corinth and building up this local church. They gave themselves in service to the believers there in Corinth. Second example, verse 19. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. Well, now, who were Aquila and Priscilla? Aquila and Priscilla were quite a couple. Married couple, husband and wife. They ran a tent-making business, we learn in Acts chapter 18. They, ran, they, they were business owners, when, Paul, when they moved from Rome to Corinth, they met Paul. And they struck up a partnership and they just stuck with Paul moving forward. When Paul moved from Corinth to Ephesus, they moved to Ephesus with Paul. And it says they actually instructed Apollos, which was one of Paul's fellow workers. Priscilla was, was, a, was a very gifted Bible teacher, a very gifted teacher of God's word instructed Apollos. And they, they, they were wealthy enough that they probably owned a home in Ephesus that was a, a big enough home that could house 50 to 60 people. So when it says that the church meeting in their home, this was a local church of about 50 or 60 people that met for worship like this in Aquila and Priscilla's home. Here's a couple that just gave themselves to the service of the risen Christ by opening their home, by founding a church, by just a beautiful picture. Regular people with regular jobs committed to serving the risen Christ in the local church everywhere they went. What we see here are lives that are oriented, organized, and prioritized around the mission of the risen Christ. And that's what it means to overflow in service. To overflow in service to the Lord means to, to orient, to organize, to prioritize your life around the mission of the risen Christ. How do you overflow in the work of the risen Lord? By overflowing in generosity, by overflowing in service, and finally, by overflowing in love. Paul gives the command in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. But what does this look like? What does it mean to love? How does this, 
work itself out in relationships. Again, Paul gives two examples here of what it looks like for the the love of the risen Lord, which we learned in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul speaks a lot to this congregation in Corinth about love. For the, the love of the risen Lord to flow through you, he gives two examples. First, verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. What's going on here? Paul is sending Timothy to the the Corinthian church. What we learn in verse 12, though, where it says, now concerning our brother Apollos. Remember, when you see the phrase now concerning, that is Paul answering a question that the Corinthians have asked him in the letter they sent to him. So what we see here is they asked in their letter, they asked for Apollos. You remember back to the beginning of the letter where there were divisions in the church and Paul talked about those that follow Apollos and and those that follow Paul. Apollos was a super gifted, super dynamic preacher and communicator of God's word. He uh, He had a charismatic personality. He attracted people. The Corinthians loved Apollos. And so they wrote to Paul and said, hey, can you send Apollos? Paul says, no, I'm I'm sending Timothy. What do we know about Timothy? The time of this letter, he was probably in his 20s. He was young. We learn from other parts of the, the New Testament that Timothy was timid. He had health issues. He had to be instructed on how to to interact in large groups. He was not an imposing figure. Polar opposite of Apollos. And Paul says, I am sending you, Timothy. Do not despise him. Do not belittle him. Do not disrespect him. And you can see with the way the Corinthians were wired and all that he's addressed in them, that they would be very tempted to just dismiss a guy like Timothy. Paul says, don't do it. You respect him. You honor him. How easy it is to respect and honor people based on how they look or based on what they do or based on who they are. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is blind to the categories we create. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is blind to color, blind to ethnicity, blind to socioeconomic status, blind to rank, blind to position, blind to popularity. And so the call to the church is to honor and respect everyone. Let me just say it this way. What I'm doing right now in preaching and teaching is no more important than the person that met you coming in the door and handed you an order of worship. And no more important than the people right now who are in the nursery loving on your children, praying for them, teaching them the gospel. Or no more important than those that run the sound booth in the back or that those that play in the worship band up front. This is a church that is all hands on deck. Everyone operating according to their gift mix. And there's not one that's more important than the other. And so the way that we love well is to honor and respect everyone. Why? Because we love and honor and respect based on everyone being made in the image of God. And number two, as Paul says, with Timothy, you honor and respect him. He's made in the image of God, but he's doing the work of the Lord. 
And so we don't create categories on the work of the Lord that causes us to love, honor, and respect some more than others. The work of the Lord is the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul lays it out. There are many parts to a body. And Paul even goes to the extreme to say, we honor the weaker parts or the ones that people see as weaker or less honorable. His whole point is that love manifests itself in honor and respect for everyone. Second example, look at verse 16. Be subject to such as these, speaking of Stephanus, and to every worker and laborer. Again, command here is to, to honor and respect. That's the way love is working itself out. And the command here is to be subject to or to, to learn from, to honor, to respect a person like Stephanus. Who was Stephanus? The first convert. He was the oldest member in the church. He was the one that was there from the ground floor. And apparently there was a problem in the Corinthian church around younger people in the church not giving due respect and honor to the older people. And you can see why that would happen. In a place like Corinth, cosmopolitan city, young and growing, and the young people are just, they got it all figured out. And the old people are washed up and irrelevant. They don't get it, right? That, that was probably going on here. And so Paul says, listen, for people like Stephanus, older people in this congregation, be subject to him. Learn, honor, and respect. We have a, a congregation here that's both young and old. And I would just say to those of you that are on the younger side of the congregation, do you realize what a gift you have with the people that are on the older side of this congregation? Do you understand the gift you have? The resource, the wisdom, the, the, the decades of them pouring their lives out in service to the risen Lord Jesus Christ and in service to his local church. And I would say the response should be honor and respect and learn from them. In fact, go up to them and say, can I please buy a cup of coffee for you? Can I buy a lunch? Can I buy your lunch? Can I take you out and just listen to you and learn from you? You see, love, abounding in love, means, as Paul is getting at here, abounding in honor and abounding in respect. Paul finishes his letter in verses 23 to 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. And then here's the key phrase, in Christ Jesus, in relationship, with the living, risen Christ, you're changed. In relationship with the living Christ, you're changed to overflow in generosity, to overflow in service, to overflow in love. Let's pray. Father, what a beautiful picture we see here of your church, of a community of faith and what it looks like to abound in the work of the risen Lord, to overflow in the work of the risen Lord. And Father, we recognize that this chapter is, is a, it's a description. 
It's just merely a description of what happens to a church and to people who are in a dynamic relationship with the risen Lord. And we pray that that would, true, that would be true of us here at Christ Church East, that we would be a people that are in dynamic and functional relationship with the risen Christ and that it would cause us to be overflowing in generosity, that it would cause us to overflow in service to Christ, that it would cause us to overflow in love in the way that we honor and respect one another. Father, would we be a, a resurrection people? Would we be a people with the Holy Spirit as down payment, so convinced of the reality of our glorious inheritance that it would radically change our lives now in the present? Father, as we continue to worship, would we sing to your risen son and sing and give the glory and honor and worth that he's due. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.